Welcome to Rail Group On Air, a joint podcast of Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Vantuono. My guests today are Keith Creel, Mark Redd, and John Brooks from Canadian Pacific Railway's Executive Leadership Team. Our podcast sponsor is the Greenbrier Companies, which offers an innovative new way for rail car customers to inspect build quality, Virtual Sample Railcar, which remotely brings you into the Greenbrier plant from the convenience of your own conference room or home office. Virtual Sample Railcar, or VSR, provides full access to a sample railcar while significantly reducing travel time and cost. It gives all the information needed to determine that your railcars meet all specifications and will be delivered as ordered. Narrated high-resolution video follows the complete build of your sample rail car with tools like high-resolution photos and 360-degree views, concluding with a live stream inspection from the plant's buy-off area. A process that normally takes three or more days is reduced to just one hour. Check out VSR at go.gbrx.com virtual. Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air. Uh, very pleased uh, to have uh, Keith Creel, who is the president and CEO of Canadian Pacific Railway, along with Mark Red, who is the executive vice president operations, and John Brooks, who is the executive vice president marketing. Welcome, gentlemen. Let's start with just talking about the uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, as every railroad has been doing uh, you've taken steps to protect your employees uh, and, and to keep the, um, the, keep the traffic moving. And uh, you've got a really dedicated workforce out there. Yeah, I would definitely agree, Bill. Let me, I think it's probably appropriate. I'll, let me back up just a little bit. So it seems like forever ago, but it was only, gosh, I guess five or six weeks ago. This COVID-19 crisis started to um, gain tremendous momentum. We're fortunate that we have a, a very active and collaborative leadership team. We communicate often. We've got a gentleman that works for us that's in charge of our risk management function. Laird Pitts, who I've worked with for, I guess, two decades now. Military background, certainly has been in the fire, for lack of a better term, many, many times. So as soon as this started to escalate, he called and said, Keith, we need to activate our emergency response room. If I take you back about a year and a half ago, two years ago, Larry came to me and said, Keith, we really need to think about having a dedicated command center that serves only if we have a crisis so that we collectively can be together in one space. Should we have something unforeseen occur, it'll be our rally point or our muster point. So we built a place within our corporate office in Calgary that um, has a space, of course, for me, for the operating chief, and then for the emergency responders from a command and control standpoint. So that's actually the space that became Pandemic Response Central for this company. So we immediately went live with it at that time and we started training and staffing up and preparing for 24-7 coverage. Uh, and they did it in a phenomenal response in a very short amount of time. Uh, and it's been running ever since. The challenge of the mandate, you know, obviously, anxieties were high, continue to be high, is to provide communication and information in a world that was changing for us daily. So we created a pandemic crisis response team that I chaired along with, of course, Mark's on it, John's on it, Laird's on it, Nadim on the finance side is on it, 
Uh, we've got a corporate doctor, Dr. Lambros, who has just been phenomenal source of information and counsel for us during this. And of course, we had our counsel as well as um, head of police and head of human resources. So we had a daily call for the longest time. I guess it was for the first three, four weeks until things started to settle down a bit. Because as you can imagine, we had a new situation that evolved every day as the borders were shut down and as our employees who were deemed essential. And in fact, in different provinces, as well as two different countries, we found that we had different policies and different procedures. Everybody with the best of intentions, but it created a bit of confusion. So we collaborated with the government in Canada to work on identifying best practices that complied with government expectations, as well as on the U.S. side, and began to start to manage our transition and shifting our workforce as this evolved from some being at work and I'm talking about support staff, to literally a week later, uh, we shifted to everyone work from home that could, as most other companies have, or likely all companies have. But that left about 85% of us that still had to go to work day in and day out. So that's when we really got involved all at the same time, sourcing materials to keep our environments clean, sanitizers, wipes, spray bottles, anything you can think of. Our sourcing department did a phenomenal job engaging in a space that, as you can imagine, was high demand for everyone. They worked around the clock to make sure that we had the products that we needed to sanitize and to keep clean our workspaces. Uh, Mark and the team went to work, not just alone, and this is what I'm super proud of, in concert in conjunction with our union leadership and our safety committees to make sure that we're one voice, we're in this thing together. It's not us versus them. And even now, he still chairs three times a week we have conference calls with our general chairman to make sure that uh, we're not missing anything, to address anything that's new that might be developed, and to ensure that if there's a concern that we can address, it's done in a very expeditious manner. So Mark's doing a phenomenal job leading that front on the operating side. And as a result, not only have our employees responded well, but the morale, uh, the sense of pride, and the sense of community and connection together as we serve a larger need than our own, which is society and society safety and the goods that we move, uh, has actually brought this company a lot closer together, uh, which as a leader, it makes my heart feel extremely warm to know that we can connect with our employees because we are a family at CP. I speak to that often. You know, we work hard. There's no shortage of sacrifice in this industry, nor in this company. We keep a constructive tension to provide service excellence day in and day out while we control cost and we make sure we operate safely. And that's not easily done. That requires discipline and sacrifice. So to get to a place where our company can grow closer and we all know that we're in this thing together, we have each other's backs as we serve society. It's, you know, to me, I've, I've said this to our team and I've had many many calls with our department heads and their key leaders. This is a once in a career opportunity. Yes, it's a huge challenge. Yes, it's extraordinary time. But if you respond with an extraordinary effort and you lead strong, you're going to create a stronger company and you're going to come out on the other side much stronger. So that's the approach we've taken. Protect our lives of our employees as we protect the livelihood of society. And it's something we're all honored to do. And quite frankly, if you take that morale, that culture, that opportunity, and you layer over to the momentum that we came into the year with, again, this has been a journey for us. This didn't just start yesterday. We're eight years into precision scheduled railroading. We pivoted to growth when I took over as the CEO three years ago. The last two years, we've led the industry in growth. We came into this year with the opportunities that we have, our business mix and our self-made opportunities that we all have collectively created and John and his team have converted into contracts and market wins. 
And that same momentum allowed us to, again, have a unique result in the first quarter within the industry uh, with RTM growth up 9% and earnings up 58% and costs down over 1,000 basis points, uh, which is phenomenal in and of itself. But the reason it inspires me so much is it creates a cushion and a buffer that no one else in this industry has that's not fueled by luck. It's fueled by a team momentum and principles and execution that same discipline and execution will help us control costs and stay close to our customers and develop deeper relationships as well that are silver swell when we come out of this thing. So we'll continue to carry that momentum as we come out of the storm. Mark, let me uh, ask you about your role here. Uh, One thing I'm aware of is the daily meeting. I'm not sure if it's still daily, but there's a, uh, a conference call involving all the class one railroad chief operating officers as well as as well as some others including Amtrak and uh, are, are those still being conducted on a daily basis? Um, yes and what we're doing was just meeting with uh, Mr. Bertori and going through some of the best practices about the railroads and learning um, simply what others are doing and how we can implement ourselves. Uh, sharing best practice that uh, Canadian Pacific is doing as well. Well, that certainly seems to be uh, working. I think it's uh, commendable that uh, you know, every in times of crisis, we, as Keith said, we all, we all pull together. This industry is blessed to have someone that understands the rail industry to be leading the FRA. You know, he pushes us, he challenges us, but at the same time, he has a, a deep, deep understanding of what we do and how critical it is. And I don't think you can put a number on that. It's invaluable. You have, uh, CP has updated uh, its, its 2020 outlook. The current view of demand environment, you now expect volume as measured in revenue ton miles to be down in the mid-single digits. John, what do you see going forward? Thanks, Bill. Um, you know, as Keith spoke to, we, we've really, this is a culmination, the, the marketing and sales effort in collaboration with the operating team is a, a culmination of the last two to three years now around our pivot to growth. And as you just think back into Q4 last year, you know, a lot of the industry was was uh, pretty intensely facing all the, the trade and political unrest that was, was, was going on. And, and at CP, through strong service execution, collaboration, and in our efforts, you know, ended up finishing 2019 with the being the only railroad with RTM growth in the industry. And it wasn't, Bill, I guess the point of that, it wasn't by accident and it wasn't by accident that we moved into Q1 and pushed forward that momentum. We had a ton of momentum coming into into Q1 on the business front. And I think what you saw evolve gives this opportunity to to maybe have a little more clear understanding of of what full 2020 might look like is is because of that momentum and the cushion that Keith spoke to that we're able to build. And frankly, as you look down our our Q1 results by commodity, outside of uh, some supply chain headwinds we faced in, in the coal sector and tougher comps and some challenges in the potash sector, just about every line of business showed growth year over year uh, across our portfolio. Certainly things over the last eight weeks have, have rapidly changed. I would characterize that that maybe the first three to four weeks of, of as this um, crisis emerged, we spent a ton of time, like everyone else, just trying to really understand what it all meant 
to Keith's point, staying really as close as we are staying to our employees to help educate them and lead them in a, in a strong and safe way, we were equally staying close to our customers to really try to understand how their business was going to transpire. And look, we're not going to get it all right. There's, there's no doubt about it. This thing is still moving pretty fast um, in in some of our lines of business. But I think to the point of we, we come into Q2 now with a in the rest of the year with a fair amount of cushion, uh, still a, a number of contract wins that have yet to materialize. And, 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 and look, they require the automakers to get back producing automobiles and some of those things to begin to realize those those volumes and revenues. But I think we also feel with a high degree of confidence that is going to turn. We've modeled this bill every which way from Sunday, the the V, the U, the W, the hockey stick, the baseball bat, you, you, you name it. You know, I, I think ultimately we've just tried to take the most prudent approach, stay close to our customers. And, and we're a PSR, we're an operating company, we're a PSR railroad. So if one area doesn't materialize, we react quick and, and we control our costs and we'll do what we need to do to ultimately deliver the results for the year. Mark, I had a question about uh, cross-border traffic. Has the, the Canadian government uh, closing the borders affected uh, rail freight movement? And if so, how? So really the impact um, from cross-border, it would be employees going to and from the border itself. We we don't run really across border with our employees unless it's within a mile or so. So the impact has been in that area, but simply put, there's we can go cross border with uh, obviously with our passports and since we're essential services, it's not really an issue. Um, so we've worked through some of those details and, and when we publish that information from the government, sometimes you have to work through the details of what they say and what they mean. And when we make our phone calls, we understand where essential services does not apply. So from a cross-border perspective, we really haven't seen um, a lot of confusion and, and part of the confusion becomes employees asking questions of can I go to and from? And I tell you, the one thing that we have done, and I think it separated us from many others, is the communication that we have with our unions during this time period. We're meeting with our union leadership three to four times a day. I spent most of the day yesterday calling different uh, pocket areas of unions uh, just to get an update, just to get um, answer some questions for a few folks and understand kind of, you know, where their headset uh, may be and, and just thanking them for what they're doing because they're standing up with leadership from a leadership perspective. We are as well. And it's things like cross border, it's things like taxi cabs. How do you handle that situation that we have grown together? And um, obviously we'll get through this, uh, through this journey. Keith, I'd like you to comment on, um, uh, some analysis done by Jason Seidel at uh, Cowan & Company. Jason, as you know, is our Wall Street contributing editor. I want to just read this quote to you. Management is choosing to maintain CapEx guidance of $1.6 billion, I assume that's in Canadian dollars, while pausing its share buyback and maintaining but not increasing the dividend. It is perhaps surprising that it isn't lowering CapEx in light of uh, economic weakness, especially given that this seems to be the approach of other companies across other sectors. However, we believe that management's longer-term approach of investing in the network now so CP can handle increases in volumes at later dates is prudent and is further evidence of the high quality of business and longer-term outlook that the railroads possess. I, I find that quite uh, inspiring. How about you? 
Well, I think he's, uh, he's captured the essence of it without it getting into the weeds of it. You know, the way I look at this, and I've been doing this a while, you know, a lot of these corridors that we do our capital work in, the way those capital budgets are allocated, and I'm speaking to basic capital or special capital, expansion capital, productivity capital, whatever you want to call it. I'm talking about physical infrastructure. It's based on a prescribed amount of track time. It's based on how many ties in that amount of time that you should be able to get in, how many feet of rail, how much ballast how much welding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you get to a space in a unique opportunity where you can double those planned work blocks and get not just twice as much because there's so much wasted time going to and from and setting up and breaking down, but two and a half times as much work done there, your unit cost is going to go down dramatically, which says that I can do more work with the same amount of money, which allows us to pull work that we may have planned for 2021 into 2020 if we get this right, which I know that we have the capacity to do. So instead of cutting back, and I've been through this back in 08, 09, and took the same approach. You know, Hunter taught me a lot of valuable lessons. And this is one where you don't get these opportunities often, and especially on our railway, where you think about going to the mountains, going to the West Coast. Think about the density of the traffic and the potash and the grain, and the coal and the intermodal, that's the lifeblood of our railway. We're often working hard to keep up and often sometimes a little bit behind and hoping that we have, you know, a late winter so we can make sure that we get all the plan work that we wanted done accomplished in a particular year. Well, we're, we're ahead this year. So to take that opportunity away from my engineering team to give us a more productive, safer railway that allows us when the business comes back to not only move it more efficiently and safer, but at a lower cost because I don't have the engineering team out there in the way as much as they otherwise would have been or to get more ties about and rail in, I'm not going to pass that opportunity up. This company is in a strong financial position. We're still, we see line of sight and an ability to produce over a billion dollars free cash flow. Our balance sheet and our liquidity is in excellent shape. To me, that would be very short-sighted in a, in a disservice, not only to our employees, but to our shareholders if we were to cut capital when it's not necessary. Now, if it became necessary, then obviously I've got a list of things that we can do that will trim some of our capital out. But I tell you, that's going to be a last resort. It's not going to be my first resort. And I just think based on experience and understanding all these moving parts, this is an, an opportunity to create success. And we'll do it, even if it's a little counter-cyclical or unique to the industry. I just believe it's the right thing to do. And I know that we'll be rewarded for it and we'll reward our shareholders and our customers by doing it this way. You mentioned uh, Hunter Harrison, of course, who was your, uh, your, your mentor, your, your, your colleague uh, for years. And you learned a lot from Hunter. I think uh, many, many people learned a lot. What do you think he'd be saying right now if, if he were here? You know what? He'd probably said a little bit louder and maybe a little bit more forceful, but I've learned over 24, 25 years of working with Hunter, especially the last 10 or 15. It took me a little while to learn, but nine out of 10 decisions were the same. Our styles are different, approaches are different, but, you know, and he didn't get it all right. And I don't get it all right. None of us ever will. We're human beings. But rest assured, his batting average is better than most. And he's taught me a lot of things that I haven't had to wonder. I've experienced it. I've worked through it. There's been times when I was learning from him. I thought it was going to break us. I didn't understand it. But once I started to learn the method to the madness and saw the common sense, make sense, do the right thing approach that he stuck to time in and time out, it got pretty uncomplicated real quickly. So I think he'd be saying do exactly the same. In fact, he might tell me to increase the capital spend. And listen, we're opportunists. If, if there's some fire sale on, on steel or ties or some of our 
suppliers get in trouble and they want to create some buying opportunities for us, we will be in a position to take opportunity of that or take advantage of that opportunity as well. I think there are a lot of suppliers out there who uh, are, are smiling right now <laughs> after you, you saying that, definitely. Uh, well, they just got to they just got to give us a, a proposition that works well for them and works well for us, and we'll certainly consider it. John, let me ask you about uh, new business. Nobody knows what the new normal is going to be, but uh, what opportunities do you see for for new business for growing the business in ways that perhaps maybe didn't appear so uh, apparent before this all came to pass? Maybe a comment, Bill, uh, a few things that that have certainly emerged, but um, not only have things emerged, but also sort of sticking to our principles that ultimately make us unique as a railroad, I think, uh, across our competitors and and peers in the industry. And and maybe leading off on, on that front, Right now, we're certainly seeing spikes in opportunities of those essential goods, whether it be cleaning supply-related chemicals, um, so certainly the, the pulp and paper industry and box production are strong. And, and when you start thinking about those and then overlaying what our franchise looks like, there's just a glaring opportunity that jumps out on the page, and that's around our recent acquisition of the Central Maine in Quebec. One of the neat things about that property is it really helped to diversify some of our, our commodity and business mix in that we're a over 40% sort of bulk-oriented railroad, but we purchased a property out in the Maritimes that gives us a greater mix of forest products and pulp and lumber and what I would call more manifest single car load business. And not only do we believe there's a strong growth opportunity that Keith spoke to on our earnings call uh, around the part of the possible and opportunity and how big we can grow that property, but in times like we're experiencing now, the, the business levels we've been able to experience because they are carload oriented and because they are tighter aligned to that, you know, more essential goods has presented a, a, a quick opportunity for us that we've been able to capitalize on in the marketplace. The other thing I'd mention, Bill, is what makes us unique as, as a railroad is we've got a operating system that has created efficiencies across Canada and the U.S. where we've got the ability through land to expand our footprint with our customers. And that's something that COVID or not, it's a gift that's going to keep given to this group. As Keith calls it, it's our self-help. We've been able to leverage that with our partners in picking the right partners to build new auto compounds or develop and support track into new plastics facilities or to build warehouses in the Toronto area and the Montreal area to give our customers solutions that they haven't had in the past um, or to build auto compounds with a partner such as Glovis that business is going to start later this year that we've developed an, an independent auto compound and service product for them that allows us to benefit certainly from from earning the business, but allows them to run their unique distribution model in North America. So it's it's certainly a combination of the two. It's embracing the situation we're in and working with our customers to find those opportunities to help them recover and emerge out of this crisis strong. But it's also keeping laser focused on these core fundamentals that we've had success the last three years, as Keith spoke to, and we're going to continue to have success as we, as we move forward. 
I would think that it, a lot of this may drill all the way down to the consumer. And these days, if people are getting used to doing things like ordering groceries online and having them delivered uh, to their door, my wife and I have been doing that. They might find, hey, this, this is really convenient, you know, if, if the supply chain works for them. That, I, as you said, I think that'll probably open up uh, opportunities because that means that people are going to need uh, companies, your customers are going to need uh, packing materials, boxes. That does open up an opportunity for, for more of the, as you said, the carload uh, type business. Would you agree? There's no doubt that this, in my mind, will accelerate the B2B type products in, in online opportunities, but how this will accelerate the business to consumer type business, to your point exactly, I, I think it no doubt will. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that emerge with some of our core customers, the, the Home Depots and the Canadian Tires and the Loblaws, their activity levels on their platforms, as you described, are, are going through the roof as, as consumers that, that maybe weren't comfortable in that space or preferred to, to go to market directly have, have now changed their buying habits. And, and, and you're exactly right. To, to what extent does that stick? And then how, as a transportation provider, can Canadian Pacific help bridge those links with that first mile, last mile service as we move forward? How about perishables? Do you see any opportunity there? Fruits, vegetables, or the railroads generations ago, before the interstate highway system was built, it was all moved by rail and, and, and refrigerated boxcars. Uh, I know that, that that was a huge business. Uh, it's come back a bit, but uh, what, do you think there's an opportunity for growth there? You know what, it, it, Bill, you, you, you hit a sore spot with me, or not necessarily sore, but one that I've always had my eye on. There's just so much product coming out of the southern U.S., uh, whether it be the Florida markets or the California markets in terms of produce that's trucked into Canada, a lot of it into eastern Canada that feels like there should be an opportunity with some of the, particularly when and, and, and maybe a little tougher right now with trucking costs, but as truck certainly tightens as we get out of this and, and volume, hopefully through stimulus and other things, it starts to ramp back up. I certainly am, at least the CP team is keeping their eye on that opportunity for sure, Bill. Well, whether these products are moved in, in refrigerated boxcars or, or in refrigerated containers, the technology is there now to track the shipments and, uh, and to be part of the uh, seamless uh, uh, supply chain. I know there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of suppliers out there that are jumping at the bit to uh, provide these technologies with health monitoring and, and tracking. Uh, over the last, um, well, over the last couple of years, CP has made a significant investment in our refrigerated intermodal product and, and specific to the opportunities you described but more so to create transparency and visibility to our customers to help grow that product. So this refrigerated intermodal product brings with it the most advanced, not only tracking, but online telematics to allow our customers to visibly be able to monitor for those um, high-risk products, whether it be pharmaceuticals that are required to be kept at a certain temperature or frozen meats or dairy products uh, that we move across North America to be able to closely monitor and have the applications to whether it be on handheld devices or within transportation departments to be able to track those containers, not only physically where they are, 
but to be able to monitor and route exactly to your point, Bill, you know, how are we maintaining the temperature in that container relative to exactly the need for the product that's in that container. So there's no doubt those products have come a long way and will only help us to sort of further integrate ourselves into these, uh, whether it be fresh foods or pharmaceutical type markets. The name of our product specifically is called TempPro, CP TempPro, and it's one of the most state-of-the-art fleets of refrigerated containers and heating containers in the industry. It's been a specific strategic investment that we've made uh, over the last 36 months. Mark, what do these changes or uh, enhancements to the business mean from an operating standpoint? So from an operating standpoint, what we want to try to understand is really balance between um, east and west. Um, most of this business would come in and around the Toronto area and uh, land in Vancouver. So uh, it's really about balance of how we um, move these goods to and from and um, create train size that we can um, re reutilize the, uh, the flats back and forth, but also just take really the head haul and the back haul of the product. And that's, that's giant space, but uh, for me, it's just creating that train speed where he can sell that product both, both ways. Velocity is really a big part of that, the overall uh, network velocity as well as terminal dwell time. That's right. It's about on time and being consistent, and that's based upon train speed. Now, I just want to thank you again for the time and the opportunity uh, to share our story at CP. You know, we've got a unique story with a unique franchise and a unique family of railroaders that are making us proud every day as they serve society. And it's, it's our honor to serve. We'll get through the storm. And when we get to the other side, we'll be stronger as, as a result of it. In the meantime, everyone should stay healthy, stay safe. Well, thank you, uh, Keith Creel, Mark Red, and John Brooks. Uh, for joining me and joining Railway Age, and uh, have a safe day. That's it for this special edition of Rail Group On Air. Thank you to Canadian Pacific and to our sponsor, the Greenbrier Companies. Be sure to check out Virtual Sample Railcar, VSR, at go.gbrx.com virtual. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief, William C. Vantuono.